Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. We have been moving through the Ten Commandments, and we've seen, uh, hopefully, uh, how uh, each of these commands has a real lasting impact on our lives, how we relate to God, how we understand ourselves, how we understand each other, um, how we understand some of our key relationships in life. And uh, as we continue in uh, to these, we... We are now in what's generally called the the second table. Uh, the first table generally is described as laws that concern our relationship with God. The second are those laws or those expectations that uh, affect our relationship to each other. And uh, th that order, I believe, is intentional, that uh, we cannot properly understand or exercise our relationship to each other until we are properly exercising and understanding our relationship to God. Uh, and we come to a command today that um, uh, is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, actually, the, the next uh, couple are pretty straightforward. In the Hebrew, actually, it's only, it's only two, two words. No murder. That's what it says literally. No murder. Um, now, we generally have, have rendered that, have transformed that into a do not or you shall not, uh, if you want to go a little bit more old school there. Um, now, in the King James, uh, as we probably grew up learning, it was, you shall not kill, or thou shalt not kill. Um, they, when you look at the actual words that, that's used here, um, kill is really too broad uh, of a descriptor, but murder is really too narrow of a descriptor. It's, it's kind of actually somewhere in between. The word is used elsewhere for unintentional killing in Deuteronomy 4. It's used of an execution of a killer in, in Numbers 35. Um, it's never used in warfare, but it, it does have these, this, this broader intention, this broader meaning, as we'll see as we go through this, than just murder, as we would normally describe it. Um, I would define it, uh, if I were asked to define it, being the, the, I guess, professor that I am, I tend to do things maybe a little bit more complicated than they need to sometimes be. As any act of violence against an individual that results in their death, even if killing was not the intention, which is motivated by anger, malice, deep, deceit, or personal gain. Okay. Um, that is the first way that the Bible describes this particular command. There are three ways. The first is this physical deprivation of life. Okay. It's bringing to, to end uh, the existence of someone who was formerly living. And so that would obviously apply to murder or manslaughter, uh, whether it was a, a, a intentional seeking the, the death of that person or an accidental death of that person. That is uh, an expression of this particular form of, of uh, uh, breaking that law. But there's another one that um, plays out here that I'm going to spend a little bit more time on today than I normally would, and that is abortion. Uh, normally, I would not spend much time on here. I'd probably, I've mentioned it, certainly, but I wouldn't spend much time here. But given the fact that um, this is so much at the forefront of our thought right now in our country with the law that's uh, uh, gone into effect here in Texas and so forth, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit more time there this morning than I, than I normally would. 
simply because I think it's important that um, as your pastor, I speak to the issue, that, that I kind of give you what I believe is the biblical take on the issue uh, to equip you, perhaps, to be able to respond to some of the questions and issues that are being raised right now in your conversations as, as again, this is this is front and center in, uh, on all our website news sources and so forth. So I want to spend uh, just a little bit of time uh, on this uh, this morning. And I, I'll just start by saying I believe abortion in every instance is wrong. In every single case, um, I believe it. I believe it's murder. I believe it is the taking of a life. Now, why do I believe that? And why? Why am I, as a male, even speaking to this? Because you often hear uh, in the discussions that men really don't have a say in this, since men can't get pregnant and men don't, you know, can't give life and so forth. That men should just kind of butt out of it. Um. I, in many ways, I kind of understand that argument. In many ways, I do. I, I understand that, you know, coming coming through uh, in ministry, when I was a youth minister, I was very slow to talk to parents about how to parent their child before I had a child. Okay, I understand the apparent hypocrisy and, and so forth or, or that sort of thing. But... Um, I think there's I think there's good reasons for me to be able to address this, and I think it goes to the fact that um, it's wrong regardless of who's who's speaking it, and it's not just a question of opinion. I think it is objectively, identifiably wrong, and therefore I can speak to it. Um, now, why do I believe that? Well, number one, I believe that because the book the Bible treats it. That way, okay. Now, I I don't generally, whenever I'm talking about abortion or conversing with somebody about the subject, I typically don't go to the poetic passages, such as Jeremiah one or the Psalm, where it talks about how we were woven in the womb by God and so forth. And the reason I don't typically go there is because they are poetry, and poetic text by nature use hyperbole, and they use exaggeration, and they use metaphor, and they use simile. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to draw hot, hard and fast rules when people are talking metaphorically. It just is. And so I don't typically go that direction. Where I prefer to go in terms of the biblical view is the law code, Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, verse uh, 22 through 25, this is what it says. It says, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman, so in other words, two men are fighting. Okay, that's that's between themselves. And in the midst of this fight, they accidentally hit a pregnant woman. Okay. They're fighting each other, they're not fighting her in any case. So that her child, her children, her child comes out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, that phrase when the child comes out or the children comes out, sometimes in some of our modern translations, they render that word miscarriage. 
that's not a great translation. Okay, That's not what's implied here. What is implied here is simply this. Two men are fighting. They accidentally harm a woman in the midst of that fight who is pregnant, and she delivers a child Okay, because of the blow that she's received or so forth. That's what it's saying there. It's not talking about a miscarriage, um, though the word is used in other contexts for miscarriage. In those places, it's clear that a miscarriage has happened. In other words, the word doesn't mean miscarriage. The word just simply means had a baby. Okay, But in other contexts, it could be a miscarriage because sometimes having a baby involves a miscarriage. But that's not what's going on here. If a woman is struck, the baby is born, then it says what? If there's no harm, in other words, if the baby's okay, you just pay a fine. Okay? If the baby has died, however, what? The very laws of killing apply. Okay. So what is the Bible here doing then? The Bible is acknowledging that baby as a human. It's, it's equating this child that has come forth at this time as fully available, fully present, fully applicable in terms of the laws of murder in, in every other instance. The child in the womb is considered as precious and as human as the child outside the womb, the person that's been born. And so the Bible takes this stand. It, it takes this, this approach here because human life is precious. And God is sovereign, and if God is sovereign and God's in control, then God's the one who determines life and death, not us. That goes to the very heart of, of the use of this word murder in terms of the execution of a killer, is that Numbers 3530 is doing what? It's, it's giving the, 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 the sovereign right of God over life to the state, something humans, individuals are not allowed to have. The state is allowed to possess. And so, looking at this passage, looking at what is stated here, suggests to me very clearly that, without even going poetic, God views that life in the womb as a human life. Now, that in and of itself, for me, settles the issue. Okay. But obviously, if you're talking to an unbeliever, you're talking to others and so forth, that's really not going to hold a lot of sway. They don't care what the Bible says. They don't care what the Bible declares about this. So what are some other reasons that contribute to this discussion in terms of my viewpoint? Well, it is scientifically and logically a child. Okay, When you talk about a, a some, some the, the person in the womb is scientifically and logically a child. And you see the scientific argument in terms of what I'm going to call the continuity argument. Okay. From conception, that being will never be anything other than a human. Okay. It's not going to suddenly turn into an eagle or a fish or whatever. It's always a human. It's scientifically speaking, that's the way it is. And you see this applied in all sorts of contexts or other creatures. 
You break a bald eagle egg, guess what? You're guilty of killing a bald eagle. Okay? So the baby in the womb is, from the moment of conception, a human. It can't be anything else. There's no other way, really, to describe it. You know, a, a pre-human? What, what is that? What, I mean, does that even make sense? Okay? So scientifically, it's a human. Secondly, there's the logical argument. And this is this is a bigger one for me in a lot of ways, and that is the consistency argument. That pro-abortion individuals are not consistent or logical concerning the status of the preborn. Okay. For instance, you hear them say they want to minimize abortion. You hear that all the time from people who are quote pro-choice as they want to label themselves. We want to minimize abortion. Why do you want to minimize an abortion if there's nothing wrong with it? Why even use that language? I, I want to minimize this. I want to, I want to keep these from taking place. I want to stop that tragedy from happening. Is it a tragedy or isn't it? If you're going to be consistent and say it's no big deal, then it's not a tragedy. If it's just a choice, it's not a tragedy. And yet they want to label it a tragedy, and they want to limit it, they want to minimize when it occurs and so forth. That's inconsistent logically. E even going more into it than that, if the child is wanted, it's a child. If not, it's just, as they say, a tissue clump. Okay. Our, our government recognizes this. In 2004, there was a law passed by our United States government. It's called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. It's on the books. It's, it's still in force today. And it says that a child in utero is identified as a legal victim. If they are, if they are injured, killed during the commission of any of the uh, of over 60 listed federal crimes of violence, the law define, defines that as murder. A child in the womb if they're killed or injured from 60 different federal crimes, it's also considered murder at that moment. And the, the law, this is how the law itself defines the child in utero. A member of the species of Homo sapiens at any stage of development who was carried in the womb. The law literally says at any stage of development carried in the womb. But then the law goes on to say, this does not apply to abortion. There's that little clause in there. Where's the consistency in that argument? Where's the logic in that argument? A few years ago, a, the, the, uh, an institute called the Guttmacher, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, institute did a study. And, and Guttmacher is a, a left-leaning left -leaning, uh, institute. And in their study, they found that one-third of the women they polled, okay, one-third of the women they polled who had had an abortion said that they rejected the idea of giving their child up for adoption because, this is quote, this was a morally unconscionable decision because giving one child away is always wrong. These are women who have had abortion. Okay, One-third of them say, I would never consider adoption because giving your child away is always wrong. Okay. 
Now, truthfully, there are some, and it's probably becoming more and more a case on the left who acknowledge this inconsistency. Uh, a woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams, who is a writer, she might be an editor, I think, for Salon Magazine. Back in 2013, she wrote an article, and this is basically the, the synopsis, the thesis statement of her article. So what if abortion ends life? I believe that life starts at conception, and it's never stopped me from being pro-abortion. That's her comment. She says, she goes on elsewhere, she says, a fetus can, uh, yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in the, whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous inside, uh, entity inside of her, always. And I would put the life of the mother over the life of a fetus every single time. Even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, it is a life worth sacrificing. That's hard to read. That, that's hard to imagine. When you go down that road, you're what? You're qualifying what lives are worth living and which ones are not. Um, and as a father of a special needs child, that hits me pretty hard. Now, one of the issues that, that's been raised um, is, is what, about, what about cases of rape? And I'll be real honest, I was not real pleased with our governor's response to that question. His comment that he would stop all rapes, <laughs> that, that's just a little ridiculous. Okay, There are better ways to respond. And, and let me just acknowledge, it is difficult. And, and I don't want to make life on any rape victim more difficult than it was before, than it was already going to be. Um, but more often than not, people who use the argument are using it to excuse all abortions. The Guttmacher survey that I mentioned earlier had less than half a percent of people were having abortion because they had been raped. Less than half a percent. And, and again, that's significant for that mother, and I acknowledge that. I realize that. But using that to argue for all abortions being legal doesn't even make sense. It's tantamount to arguing that we should eliminate all traffic laws because a person might have to break one rushing a loved one to a hospital. Okay. Both are serious conditions, but they don't logically lead to the proposed solution. Okay. Going a little bit further into that survey, most women who identified having abortions, they gave multiple reasons why. In other words, there wasn't just one answer. There's multiple reasons that piled up. But if you're looking at the primary reason, when they were asked what the primary reason was, 25% said the timing was just wrong for the pregnancy. 
23% said they weren't financially able to support the child. 19% said they had enough children already. Um, 8% 8 did not want to raise a child alone. 7% too young to have a child. 4% it would interfere with career. 4% mother's health. 3% baby's health. The reasons most of these grow out of self-concern, selfishness. And I would even argue against the, the baby's health one, because I've, I've been in that chair. My wife and I have been in that seat. The very first thing we were told after we, were, we found out Jonathan uh, would be born with spina bifida. The very first thing out of the counselor's mouth was, this gives you the right to an abortion. Not, I'm sorry, not, this is difficult, not, I know this is hard. Let me list the options for you. The very first thing was, you know this gives you the right to an abortion. Let me just say, my son is not less than me. And when he was in the womb, he wasn't less than me. Now the doctor's got all sorts of things wrong about him. Praise God in terms of things that he would face, things he wouldn't be able to do. We were told he never talked. Sometimes we kind of wish that were true. <laughs> we were told he never walked. At his first Special Olympics. Um, the boy who would never walk was... Um, Disqualified for running too fast. But even if they hadn't been wrong about his outcomes, even if they had diagnosed his expected outcome perfectly, abortion was still not an option. Now let me just say, our approach to this, our discussion of this, has to be with a heart of love. And we need to acknowledge that just as with every other sin that man might commit, there is forgiveness. There is hope, there is life, there is renewal. There is joy to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need to always put that forward. We need to always acknowledge that. That always needs to be our mindset when dealing with these issues. No matter how passionate we may feel about it, no matter how much we may believe 
we are right, and I do believe we are right, those of us who are pro-life. Arrogance has never convinced anybody. Judgmentalism has never helped anybody. We need to function from a perspective of love and hope and a future in what we say and what we do with the sensitive issue. One of the, the struggles I've had with this, with this law is not so much the law itself, but the arrogance with which it's been discussed too often. We need to have a compassion, a mindset, a perspective that, that says that that person that we're, quote, chastising is a person too. And we need to treat them as such and love on them. And so, you shall not murder can mean physically robbing someone of their life. But it, it also has two other meanings in Scripture. Second meaning is to break the will or spirit of another. To crush somebody. In Hosea 6.9, Hosea says this. He, he says, like raiders who wait in ambush for someone, a band of priests murders, and it's the same word that's used in Exodus 20.13, on the road to Shechem, they commit atrocities. Now, he's not suggesting there that these priests on the road to Shechem have committed physical murder. That's not what he's suggesting at all. He, this is not a physical reality that, um, that he's mentioning here. He's talking, about, he's talking about a spiritual murder. He's talking about a crushing of those people, a deceit, a lying, a destruction of their life and of their mindset and of their perspective. I believe he mentions Shechem in particular because Jose is linking the, 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 the actions of the priest to that of their ancestor Levi in Genesis 24-25, where Levi lied to the people of Shechem in order to uh, get them in a vulnerable place so he might kill them. Hosea here is saying spiritually that too often that's what the priests there in Israel were doing. They were lying to people in order to get them into a spiritually vulnerable place so that they might destroy them. And so the murder of someone, the killing of someone, extends to our lies that would crush them, our, our misdirections that would destroy them, our, our communication to them that would lead them down a path of loss and hurt and pain. This morning in our Sunday school class, we were talking about James chapter 3 and the power of the tongue and how it has the power to both heal and to destroy. The Bible affirms that the very words we speak can be words of death. And we need to be mindful of that. 
which brings us to the third meaning as well, which means to humiliate. Using sneering words or just the practice of humiliating people. Perhaps by ignoring them. Perhaps by not including them. Perhaps by looking at them oddly when they want to be a part of something. Deuteronomy 22 compares the severe humiliation of the rape woman to the murder of a group of people. Not just the, the rape itself, but the humiliation that is heaped upon her by the culture is compared there to that. And of course, most of us are aware of Jesus' words in Matthew 5.22, I say to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Where Jesus takes the words concerning killing to a whole new level of our attitudes and our dispositions toward those around us. And these last two are, are significant for us because they're the two we tend to ignore. We can get fired up about abortion or murder or those sorts of things physically depriving. We can, we can see that. We can, we can stand up from a distance and say, yes, that's wrong. But when it comes to these other expressions that are also put in the same context that, that Jesus outlines as the same punishment for, we tend to minimize those. We tend to take those and, and push those aside. Yeah, I said that to that person. That's no big deal. I excluded that person. I, 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 I diminished that person. I misled that person. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. It is at the heart of what God has commanded here. You shall not murder. Why? Because people matter. People's wholeness and mentality and perspective of themselves matters to God. And for any of us to rob people of that is to rob them of the essence of who God desired them to be. And called on them to enjoy. This law tells us several things about God and about ourselves. It tells us Number one, that God loves humanity, all of us. We were created in His image. To diminish a human is to diminish God in many ways. He loves life. Why did God create humanity? He didn't need anything. He was self-sufficient, self-sustained all by Himself. The three persons of the Trinity well together in perfect harmony and, and joy and, and everything before humanity was even a reality. He created to share the joy and experience of himself with someone else, at least in part. He created so that that joy could be manifested, could be expanded, could be appreciated, by other entities. It was an outgrowth of his love for life, his love for happiness, for joy, for all that. It was an expression of all of that. 
We were created and recreated in Christ to have life. I came so that you may have life and have it to the fullest, abundantly, overflowingly. I didn't come, Jesus said, to, to, to give you a, a mediocre life and an average existence, a going through the motions type experience. I came so that you may have abundant life. Why? Because I love life. And I want you to enjoy that. These, this law highlights that. It emphasizes that. It elevates that truth by putting it at the center of God's expectations for Israel. So what can we do? What can we do to grow in our appreciation of life, to grow in our appreciation of, of God's expectations? Well, number one, we can be careful about our intake. We as a society have become more and more numb to the idea of death. Now, I enjoy a good movie as much as the next person. And I like the violent ones, I'll be honest. I like the shootouts. I like the explosions. I like those things. It, 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 it's entertaining. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. It's entertaining. But we're getting to the point to where that's all we interact with. That's all we do. That's all we see. A study a few years ago said that by the time an average child leaves elementary school, so I don't know exactly what age, <laughs> I've lost track of ages in my old age, but sixth grade, which would be what? 10, 11, 12? 12? We'll go with 12. Okay, they will have witnessed 8,000 murders, over 100,000 acts of violence. By the time a child reaches 18, she'll have witnessed 200,000 acts of violence um, and over 40,000 murders on TV that sort of thing. News stories, movies, TV shows, that sort of thing. That can't do anything but, but some harm. To witness that many in your life, to have that much go in, it can't have the result but minimizing what death is really is and the seriousness of it. And again, I'm not advocating for getting rid of those things altogether. I'm just saying, let's use some common sense. Let's practice some moderation. Let's, you know, as the book of Ecclesiastes, too much of anything is a bad thing. Okay. And when it's already a bad thing, piling it on can be even worse. Secondly, remember that the right to life doesn't just apply to the preborn. Churches, evangelicals, politicians too often are really good about talking about abortion and its wrongness, but when a person is born, they begin to ignore them, shun them, not minister to them, connect with them, help them in their walk. Whether it's uh, providing food and clothing and housing or, or just speaking words of life, sharing the truth of who Christ is, 
we should be as interested in the person who's standing in front of us as the person who's in the womb standing in front of us. And too often we have gotten off kilter the other direction in terms of what we highlight, what we advocate for, what we call for. Third, speak to life. As you speak things, as you address things, as you communicate things, they become more a part of your thought processes and those that you interact with. Take opportunities to, 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 without being judgy or without being condescending or those sorts of things, take opportunities to acknowledge the wonder of a child in the womb. The importance of a person in who they are standing before you. That when you praise somebody and they wonder, well, why are you, why are you praising me? Or why, why are you saying that? Why are you proud of me? Or highlight. Because you were created in God's image. Say those sorts of things. Too often we've been cajoled into, into being silent. And we get embarrassed about saying things about life and its significance when that should be at the very heart of all that we speak about. And then we need to share our faith. The ability to keep all of these laws that are outlined in Scripture doesn't come from the legislation doesn't come from the expression of them. It comes from the ability or willingness that grows out of a changed heart. Legislating abortion is not going to ultimately change abortion. I heard a news story coming in this week that abortions in Shreveport have exponentially grown just over the last week because people can't get them in Texas, so they're driving across the border to Shreveport. And the numbers have just bloomed there significantly. Outline abortion won't end it. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm simply saying that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is a changed life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. As that person sees their value, before God, they'll come to see the value of the little one as well. And that needs to be our primary motivation, drive, desire as a church, to see Christ glorify and see people coming to a saving knowledge of a relationship with Him. And if you're here this morning, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you've experienced, I want you to know, Jesus Christ wants you to have life. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. He wants you to experience a transformed existence before Him. It's described as becoming a, a whole new creature when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about praying a prayer. It's not about saying the right words. It's about a relationship with the God who made you a relationship that you don't have 
until you've given your life to Him and connected with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you've not experienced that today, I, w- I want to invite you to that. Not just because it will rescue you from hell, not even primarily because it will rescue you from hell, but because with that decision, with that relationship, comes life, life right now, and life everlasting. That is what the call to salvation is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. I thank you that they are all created. We are all created in your image. What a blessing and a benefit. What a what a true joy to be able to, to even consider that, to think about that, what you've done, what you've accomplished, and who we are through your work. God, I pray for for grace for each of us as we carry out our lives, that we would live lives that that respect life, that acknowledge life, that encourage instead of tear down, that, that lift up instead of destroy. And Lord, that we would speak words of life and hope and deliverance and encouragement to, to those who are struggling with the questions that we dealt with today, that are struggling with Maybe past decisions. Help us to be a light and a comfort in those circumstances. Lord, I ask that you be with anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you that they can identify that that says, yes, I belong to God. I'm walking with him and I'm discovering him and I'm growing in him daily. Lord, I pray that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith. Lord, I pray that you would just use this time for your purposes. Use this message to go well beyond what anything I could accomplish, Lord, to to express your will and your desire for life. Lord, go with us this week. May we reflect you and reveal you to the world around us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.